From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep. We dive deep into our Catholic faith. I'm your host, Andrew Hansen, along with Amber Servany, a special guest in studio today, Dr. David Bertana from the University of Illinois Springfield. Dr. Bertana, thanks for coming in. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you're very welcome. He is here because we're going to explore the 10 things you didn't know about Christmas. And you teach a class out at UIS, not the 10 things you didn't know about Christmas, but you, taught, you teach a Chris, Christmas class out over there. Absolutely. Well, I worked in my graduate school. I was studying in Germany for a year. And uh, while I was in Germany, I took a course on the history and origins of Christmas. All the texts were in German. And I said, when I finish my doctorate someday, I'm going to teach this course in English. And so I did. I, I went to Catholic University of America for my PhD in Semitic languages and literature, looking at a lot at uh, Arabic literature and Syriac, but I've also made sure that I kept that course and developed it. And I teach that out there at UIS now. So how many languages do you know? Oh, I work primarily in Arabic and Syriac and I read Latin, uh, the German and, and French typically. Interesting. Wow. That's wild. All right. Well, 10 things you didn't know about Christmas. He is Dr. David Bertana. Let's get started. Number one. All right, Dr. Bertana, why is the date for Christmas December 25th? Well, sometimes I hear people talk about, well, it, maybe it was in the spring because shepherds wouldn't be out in the spring. But of course, that's not the case in a Mediterranean climate. It's capable for people to be out at any time of the year. And so one of the things that we know is that we don't know exactly the, the date as far as Early Christians were not quite sure of it. We have some references in the second century to people thinking that possibly it's around the same date as his death date, which would be in which would be in March or early April. Um, but we have another number of other people that start to do calculations, and based on their calculations, um, and then based on a rereading of the biblical text, they start to realize, you know what, December twenty fifth makes a lot of sense, and here's why. So in the early tradition. If you look at Luke, Luke talks about the story of Zechariah and John the Baptist and Elizabeth. And how does how is John the Baptist born? How is he conceived? And so in the around the turn of the second century, a particular text mentions that Zechariah, when he entered into the temple, that he was doing this on the date of Yom Kippur. Well, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in the Jewish tradition, is something that typically falls around late September. And so um when early Christians in the second century looked at that text in, in the Gospel of Luke in the first chapter, they thought, well, if he's going in there and into the temple at the time of incense and he's offering up incense and this is when the angel Gabriel appear, appears to him and tells him, You're, John is going to be you know, the prophet who points to the Messiah, they thought, well, okay, that works out to Yom Kippur. Um, that's around September 24th is a possibility. And in fact, on the liturgical calendar, the, the birthday of John the Baptist is the 24th of September. Now, we know later on in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, um, there is the Annunciation and uh, to Mary and uh, the announce, Annunciation of Jesus' conception. Uh, right at that time, then, it says that Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Elizabeth is six months pregnant at the time that um, in, within Luke, it mentions that six-month pregnancy. Well, six months after September 24th, what do we get to about December. March 20? We get to March 25th. March, there you go. And yep. we get to the Annunciation date. <laughs> here we get my calendar right here. <laughs> <laughs> the other way. <laughs> and so if we, if we extrapolate from that, of course, nine months later, we come to the December 25th date. So it was these second, it was the second and third century Christians who were reading their Bible and then extrapolating from that if Zechariah 
was going on, uh, going and entering the temple at the time of Yom Kippur, when incense would be offered before God, that if that's the case, then that would be the date upon which Jesus was born. And so that's why the early church sets that date on December 25th. How soon was December 25th kind of Christmas? If we, you know, was that what year that was? Well, that's a tricky thing, and, and scholars haven't fully answered that question because we know that the feast of of Pascha or of Easter is celebrated immediately in the church. So Paul is already talking about that, and the and the and and they're already they want to there are even differences between early Christians. Do we celebrate it on the actual date and remember that date no matter what day of the year it falls, or do we follow the the Passover calendar and and have it go according to that? But they don't start talking about the Christmas date until either just prior to or after the legalization of Christianity. So it may, what what I think as far as the, probably the most likely case is that it becomes an empire-wide feast after the legalization of Christianity, but that prior to that time, Christian, uh, that the Christmas feast is in some sense celebrated in Bethlehem because we know that after the legalization, there were already shrines in Bethlehem hmm. to the birth of Jesus. There were different shrines throughout Israel already. Um, that that these these Jewish Christians, these early Christians, were were following and uh, venerating, uh, you know, just like we have uh, places devoted to Paul and Peter in Rome. Those places were commemorated as places of shrines, and so it's not surprising then that those people would have been interested in it, and it would have been a grassroots movement that people who wanted to devote their lives to understanding more about Jesus would have would have asked those questions. Hmm, very fascinating. Very interesting. Ten things you don't know about Christmas. What's next? Number two, where was Jesus born? Well, we usually hear about where was Jesus born, and you might think of perhaps you uh, look at a nativity set that's placed over the fireplace or somewhere in your living room or the family room, and on that nativity set is a nice pretty stable, and it's made out of wood. Maybe it's a Fontanini set or something like <laughs> that, and and you imagine it, and uh, and a stable is 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 something that. Uh, you have your ox and your ass, you have your magi, you have your your shepherds, you have an angels who are singing, and and of course then you have Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. The stable image is something that we get from medieval Europe. In the Mediterranean, even by the time of the first century, much of the area had been deforested. And so if you were going to use uh, a stable, then you wouldn't be using wood for a stable because it was simply a plenty it wasn't a plentiful resource. It's pretty rare, and so you would find alternatives. The popular image of the stable we have uh, comes a lot from St. Francis of Assisi and his tradition that he he started uh, where he had a mass to commemorate and emphasize the simplicity of the birth of Jesus in which he set it up in a wooden stable and with an ox and an ass there and he held his mass. And that tradition caught on of this image of a stable that was made constructed from wood and and then this becomes eventually copied and used and so we get all kinds of different nativity sets that we have today and so we have the um little uh village life scenes we have of nativities uh within eastern europe for instance in poland they have castle buildings built with a nativity in the middle many different styles all the way. And today we have, so the Fontanini sets or maybe a Lego set, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> one is. of those for my kids. Yeah. 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 It's and, hard to build a cave out of Lego. So maybe me not. <laughs> yeah. So what we have, of course, a stable in the Middle East is going to be from a cave. 
Uh, and so what we see in a lot of the early Christian iconography is the the picture of Jesus within a cave where he is first born. And then the oldest references we can find are in two uh, two of the oldest texts that are now, they're not specifically mentioned what the stable is in Luke and Matthew, but within the infancy gospel of James, which is right around the turn of the late first, early second century. And then also in um, the work of Justin Martyr, both of them already mentioned that Jesus was born in a cave. So by the time of the start of the second century, this Christian tradition is firm. And I think the reason they mention this is because there was already a shrine there in Bethlehem that Christians were worshiping at. And so when they said a cave he was born in, they didn't just mean a random cave. They probably knew about some type of location that early Christians were devoted to. Yeah, I was fascinated by that. I just got back from the Holy Land um, not that long ago. And that really struck me in that actually there was probably even people with them is what they said, that they were going to a like basically someone's home or that maybe Mary knew or something, which is definitely not the image I ever had in my head. You know, like you kind of imagine out in the hill, totally alone. Right. And um, that's not how it was described when we were there. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Then when you, uh, you, you don't even like go down underneath where he's born in, in Bethlehem where the, the church is. Yeah. You go down to the, to the spot. Yeah. You have to it kind of descend because like they is, built is it, a church right? There's a huge, beautiful church now over it. And so to get to that very spot, um, you have to descend down stairs. Hmm. I just, it was, I, I'm, I consider myself an Easter person. So I'm not a Christmas person. So I didn't, I was excited. To bah, humbug, right. Amber. I know. I just always, I like Easter. <laughs> it's my thing. Um, but I was deeply moved at that moment to, to be in that spot. It was really powerful. Uh, really, really amazing. Have you been out to Bethlehem? I have. I've had an opportunity a couple of times to visit the church in the nativity. And it is true. It's hard to get the full picture and portrait of the what the cave is like um, under the building. It was a fourth century construction. It was done um, at the behest of Constantine, his mother, Helena, uh, traveled to the Holy Land. She went there. She met with the Christians who were worshiping there at these shrines and said, I want to build a nice, beautiful church where this shrine is. And and uh, and so that's how we get these this particular site, the Church in the Divinity and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for, for the Easter Christians, too, that love that part, too. <laughs> Ten things you didn't know about Christmas. What's next? Number three. What happened to Jesus's original crib? Can anybody identify where his crib is? This actually ties into the story. I, I do know. Okay. The original, because I, I visited Rome. You visited Holy uh, St. Mary Major. Is where I saw it's a it's a, I'll call it a big chunk of it at least. Yes, that's right. We've got we've Sweet. got a relic there. Okay, well, shoot, we're down to nine questions now. Uh, yeah, the, was that Saint Helena as well? Bringing that yes, over? Yes, absolutely. It ties into that last one. So after after Constantine legalizes Christianity, Saint Helena travels throughout the Holy Land and she's looking and talking to Christians about. Uh, relics that that are available. She talks to them about the uh, the different sites. Um, for instance, they bring back the the stairs upon which Jesus walked at the temple and the, the for Caiaphas, and so those are in Rome as well. Um, that's one of the things she brings back. She brings back uh, portions of the true cross, um, and also that's one more thing she brings back uh, from Bethlehem is this this relic of the crib, and so we can find that today in the Church of Santa Maria Maggiore. Uh, which is one of the first churches we have that is completely devoted to the nativity, to Christmas. And if you walk into that that church today, you will still see some of the original 5th century mosaics that depict different scenes from the, the life of Mary and then the birth story within there. And then now you've, I'm sure you've walked down below. Yeah, underneath, it's, underneath it's really cool. Really cool. Yeah, and underneath the altar, you walk down the, the the stairs, and then right down below there is a reliquary made from silver and glass, and you can see within there 
that that piece of the 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 crib which is there. Anytime you see relics, you're always I, I always leave disappointed because you look at them and you're like, savor this moment, say that Jesus was actually in this in this crib right in front of me. I I can see it. And then you leave there thinking like you you're gonna something's gonna come over you, like you're gonna leave with this whole sense, and it's just like you don't. But then someone is just like you you just can't fathom that. You can't you want to just put it into your soul what you're just seeing, but you just I always leave just a little frustrated. Um it's also a fun fact about St. Mary Major, the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, the ceiling is based off the ceiling at St. Mary Major. Very same. It's very inspired by that is what Amazing. I'm told. Interesting. Yes, that um, that church actually had, uh, it, it went through multiple stages. It had a, a fourth, fifth century construction. Then it had a, uh, a um, late medieval, early Renaissance makeover. Uh, in the neo-Byzantine style, and then it had the the roof burned, and then it was so it was redone uh, in the Baroque period as well. So, do we know where any other big chunks of the crib are? We don't. That's the that's the main relic that we have. And so, if there are any other out there, there would be little slivers that would have been shared from the church. Yeah. All right. Ten things you didn't know about Christmas. What's next? Number four. Who were the Magi, and how many were there? Well, that's a good question because. We are not sure. It doesn't say in the gospel according to Matthew how many magi there were. We do know that the word magi comes from the word uh, majus, and that this word in the the Semitic refers to the people that we would call Zoroastrians or those who um, were ones who would study the stars. Um, And what's interesting about that is that uh, sometimes we have the popular um, kind of image of them as kings, and, and of course, there's nothing about the, them being kings at all whatsoever in the scripture or about wise men. What does wise men mean? Really, <laughs> really, really, it means people who were perhaps looking at the stars, astronomers, astrologers. Uh, and so um, what's interesting is that the reason that the Magi are in the story is because in the Old Testament, there is a prophecy that all the nations will come. They will see his star and that they will come and worship him. And so this this verse that in the Old Testament was interpreted uh, by Matthew to be referring to Jesus. And so when he talks about the Magi, he is talking about them representing all of the Gentiles, re- representing all people who will come to Jesus Christ. And so he is not just a Messiah for the Jews, but he's a Messiah for the whole world. And so uh, the Magi, um, as far as the the early traditions, in the West, they are consistent that there are three of them, uh, Balthasar, Melchior, and Gaspar. That's uh, that's always like a fun fact question. Name the three wise men. I can never remember any of them. <laughs> yeah, and, and and we do have we have a quite early picture of them in in Ravenna in Italy. Uh, there are some mosaics there that show the three wise men from the from fifth sixth century that depict them as they are walking up to offer their gifts to uh, to Jesus and with the names there above them. But in other Eastern traditions, they mention more. Some of them have seven wise men. Some of them mm. have eight, that there was a larger group of, of no wise idea. men. Hmm. And there are, in fact, um, some early sources. Uh, Julius Africanus is one of them who says he found this text, which uh, r- talks to, purports to have reports of the wise men after they returned and, and some of the stories about them. So we've got lots of interesting and colorful stories about these these people. And some insist that they were um, not just from from the east, from the 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 area of what's today Iraq and Iran, uh, but that they were also from from Arabia, from Africa, and so that's where we get some of our traditions that they that they represent all peoples is from that. So it's connected with the Old Testament and connected with lots of uh, Christian tradition. Interesting. Interesting stuff. All right, ten things you didn't know about Christmas. What's next? Number five. All right, we're talking about the Magi. 
What are gold, frankincense, and myrrh? What's that all about? So once again, going back to the Old Testament, and we've got this tradition where, uh, once again, there is a promise that all the kings shall come before him, uh, that is, and this was read as the Messiah, bringing, bringing gold and frankincense. And so this passage in the Old Testament was immediately identified when the Magi came and brought these gifts. This was clearly a fulfillment of what was promised for the Messiah. Now, it mentions gold and frankincense. What would uh, Now, myrrh, myrrh is not mentioned in the Old Testament passage there, but at other points, it has a, a really important meaning. And so what do you think those three mean? What do you think gold would represent for Jesus? Being a king? Absolutely, yeah. A gold is for kingship. And what about frankincense? Where else was frankincense used in in the tradition? I'm trying to remember. Which Where would they use incense? Where would Jews use incense? Well, one of them has to do with death. That's myrrh. Yes. That's myrrh. Okay, that's the myrrh. myrrh. And myrrh predicts the burial of Jesus, that his birth is predicting his death. Which is always, which is very fascinating that you would think someone is bringing you something, a child is just born and a wise man brings you something to do with death. Yeah. But to your point, it symbolizes why Jesus came into the world for, for the first place. Exactly. So we have we've got the the um, the we have the, the the gold for the king. The the incense is something that remember Zechariah was burning in the temple. So the role of the the incense, the frankincense, represents the pe- the priestly role of Jesus Christ. So we have the kingly role and we have the priestly role together right there. And the myrrh. What's really interesting is it, it sets up nicely Jesus at the beginning of his life and at the end of his life. At both places, he's in a cave. In both places, he is wrapped up in clo- in cloths, and in both places, there is myrrh. So we see this full circle comes full circle his life um, through his birth and death. So if there were more than three wise men, as some maybe reports possibly, do, do we, any other gifts come? Do we know? I, I don't know if there was uh, anything else. You know, maybe some wool, or you know, maybe the shepherds probably probably brought something. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Some cookies. Uh, yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, you got to get a food is, is a staple for Christmas. All right. 10 things you know about Christmas. What's next? Number six. How is Jesus the new Moses? Well, one of the things that we've seen in, in Luke and Matthew is that they saw the New Testament. They saw their their writings, their their gospel, their good news as a fulfillment of what was going on in the story of the the Hebrew Bible, and that all of those things that they had been hoping for would come around. And so with Jesus, we see a lot of similar patterns in his life to what we see with Moses. We see both of them have um, auspicious beginnings. You know, the, the story of Moses, right? How is he? He's born under the circumstances. What's going on? Why is, is Moses born in a comfortable place in Egypt? No, he's he's in exile. He's in Egypt in the same way Jesus is going to go into exile in, in Egypt, but he's also exiled from Nazareth. He's in exile in Bethlehem. So both of them are born in different locations that are not typically their homes. The second thing, how are they uh, are they born under um, persecution, right? Uh, Moses, the uh, and there's a command to slay all Hebrews, and so and so he's born under under persecution, and his life could be forfeit. It's the same thing with Joseph, with uh, Jesus, and with Herod, that his life could be killed. When you have the story and the commemoration of the massacre of the innocents, which is a the De- December 28th feast day, and so then we also have the story of them that they are growing up. Uh, and that they quickly ha- they have the Lord has has special gifts has set them aside for for special things and so there's a lot of things tied to 
the birth of Jesus and the birth of Moses that have some similar patterns and themes to them. And it can go on and on. We can talk about, you know, the, the, the old commandments and the new commandments and many other things, but even in the nativity story itself, there's clearly that in God's plan, he was trying to show these Jews that Jesus was the one who was promised because he was doing the same things that Moses did. Well, I do want to talk about one of those. You mentioned the commandments because Jesus basically expounded on them, or I don't know if you want to say the word expanded, but you know, I think of like thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus raises the bar and says, even if you look at another, you know, person with lust, you have committed adultery. He kind of takes, you know, the one commandment and expand and expands upon it, making him the new Moses too, right? Yeah, exactly. And so what what we see there is that um, the, this law-based and un, this legalistic understanding of what God desires from us, turning to this, turning your heart, heart toward God and that, uh, and turning it toward repentance and going beyond. And so this, the, uh, Jesus's idealism for us is a goal that we can strive for. And the wonderful thing is that when we don't, we have forgiveness. And, um, but, but that, uh, the other thing is that with Moses sets up a model. He sets up a model of sacrifice, of course, and that Jesus is going to fulfill that sacrifice, sacrificial model. He's going to become not only the scapegoat, but the the lamb who is going to be sacrificed for everyone. So that that model between Moses and Jesus, you know, it continues throughout his life. Ten things you don't know about Christmas. What's next? Number seven. How is Mary the new Hannah? Okay, for those of you who don't know, who is Hannah? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm Catholic. I don't know the Bible. <laughs> She's a second wife who couldn't have a child. And that's, then she did. That's right. She does. Insult. So Good job, Amber. So, We're a host of a podcast and one of us got it right. That's good. Yeah. So one of the one of the neat stories about Hannah that we've got here, and I, I'm just going to put this up here so I can read it. This is in uh, 1 Samuel 2. And so Hannah is a woman who is barren. She can't have children. And then she is granted uh, uh, Samuel. And so uh, she prays this prayer. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows by him deeds are weighed and the bows of the warriors are broken. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food but those who were hungry are hungry no more. And she, she who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. And so this continues on. And this story, that this praise that Hannah has is, a, is what we would call a canticle. It's a song in thanksgiving for what God has done for her. And so Hannah's story is something that happens. It repeats again in the story of Mary and her Magnificat. So her words are quite similar to the same words that Hannah gives at this point. And it makes a lot of sense why that is the case. Mary growing up as a good Jew, she would have known her stories. She would have known the story of Hannah. Um, and so when she has the same thing, the same situation where she has a child uh, who has been called apart and set apart and has a special message, she rejoices with the same kind of wording and talking about how uh, those who are uplifted are going to be laid low and those who are the marginalized are going to be magnified because she sees herself in that and she sees Jesus in that, that that marginalization, that oppression is going to be overcome. The powers of the world are going to be overcome by the powers of heaven. So I think Hannah's a great model for Mary and she's a great model for us too. So sometimes we don't 
we don't talk about her enough. And I think she's a, so she's someone definitely worth exploring more in our tradition. Clearly profound. Faith. I knew nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's like a profound display of faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of married and this isn't in our list, but do we know how old she was when Jesus was born? Do we know how old Joseph was. The tradition goes back to, and this is again, late, late first, early second century is that Mary was 16 years old at the time uh, that she had served in the temple prior to that. Um, and that uh, during this time period, then uh, as she left the temple, then there was um, a situation where uh, because her parents had passed away that uh, and so she was an orphan that they needed someone to take care of her as a ward. And so um, one of the ways that you would do that would be that you had some type of legal kinship connection established. And so a kinship connection could be done through some sort of adoption or through marriage. And so the tradition is that Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Moses, that Joseph, uh, by drawing a series of drawing by lots, that uh, Joseph uh, drew drew the lot that signified that he would take Mary. And so that he was an older man, his his sons who were already older than Jesus, those are the brothers of the Lord, those are uh, James and others, and that then Joseph took on Mary as a ward. And so that's why um, they're in a, a different relationship um, that they have this, this kinship is established through the, through the um, betrothal. Um, but that it's not the same thing as our, you know, as our modern marriage. Mind blown. I was like, Amber, Amber, Amber <laughs> just looked at each other and were like, what? What? <laughs> so, so the Holy spirit was clearly working there when uh, Joseph was basically picked out of a blind drawing in a sense. Well, uh, not just a blind drawing, but a divinely sanctioned, d- divinely guided drawing. But yeah, and you'll see uh, Joseph oftentimes in movies, he'll be around the same age as Mary uh, and they'll both be young. But in in many, most of our iconography, Joseph is portrayed as an older man because the the brothers of Jesus are his stepbrothers, right? They're not, they're not, they're not related to him in any way. I still think you think so. You're Mary 16 when you know Jesus is born. So figure maybe she, you know, she was 15 when Gabriel came. Can you imagine that? As you're thinking right now, the 15 year old showing, and then the angel shows, "Hey, you want to be the mother of God?" And you say yes, and yeah, you're 15. No problem. <laughs> like, Sign me up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's incredible. All right, ten things you didn't know about Christmas. What's next? Number eight. What is Gabriel's role in the Old Testament and New Testament with Daniel and Zechariah? Yeah, I, I guess I uh, talked a little bit about this beforehand, but what's really interesting is that Gabriel, the angel Gabriel only appears twice in uh, in the once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. So he doesn't have a lot of roles. But one of the times he appears is in the book of Daniel where Daniel is in the temple and uh and Gabriel has a special message for him. And then Zechariah is the other place where Gabriel appears. Of course he appears to Mary, but he is also going to appear to Zechariah. What's interesting with Daniel and with Zechariah is that the angel Gabriel appears to both of them when they are both in the temple. Both of them are going to offer incense up to God. Both of them are going to pray not just for their own case, but they're going to pray for all of Israel. And then both of them receive a promise from Gabriel. Daniel receives a promise that in 70 weeks of years, eventually the exile of of the Jews and they will cast it off and the Messiah will come. And Zechariah gets the message that you will bear the, the, the final prophet and that he will point to the Messiah. And so the angel Gabriel plays a very important role in the coming and prediction of the coming of the Messiah and then setting the stage for the Messiah. And what it shows us also is that Zechariah and Daniel are deeply connected uh, to one another in their experiences and what they do in their roles 
uh, the roles that they play in the story of the nativity. Very fascinating. Yeah. Gabriel, patron saint of communications. That's right. Clearly, you know, he's got to, you know, when you show up to the message of Mary, you got to get that one right. You know, you don't want to screw that one up. Right. The, the, <laughs> the word angel itself comes from the, the Greek word angelos, which means a, a messenger, somebody who's got something they need to say. Yeah. Good thing Gabriel got it right. All right. 10 things you know about Christmas. What's next? Number nine. All right. One of my favorite traditions as a family, I think all of us setting up the Christmas tree, Dr. Bertana. So what are the medieval Christmas mystery plays and what is their connection to Christmas trees? Yeah. A lot of people think, well, the Christmas tree is a pagan invention and, and this is why it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, just, it shouldn't really have anything to do with the religious celebration, but it's actually a little bit more complex than that. Uh, for one thing, we don't have any evidence of um, pagan traditions or of Christians using Christmas trees during the time when there were pagans around. That That's simply not the case. What's much more interesting is the fact that we find Christmas trees that um, are going to be used in the medieval tradition, in, and they're going to be in, in churches or, or in processions uh, by churches during the case of uh, mystery plays. Now, what is a mystery play? A mystery play is when guilds, merchant groups— that would sponsor plays uh, through at the church, and they would be on religious themes. One of the popular mystery plays that would be done would be one on the nativity. And so uh, during this time, the feast day prior to Christmas on December 24th is the feast day of Adam and Eve. And so during this feast day, you would have the tree that would be processed through with Adam because, of course, Adam and Eve, or you have the new the new Eve, who is Mary, and the new the new Adam, who is Jesus Christ, and they fulfill and and restore that link. And so, in these medieval mystery plays, there would be this handing off, this connection between the Adam and Eve and Mary and Jesus. And so, what they would do is that Adam would process with a tree. And what do you think that tree represented? Uh, well, if it's, it's a certain, is there any certain trees that we remember from the Genesis story at all? <laughs> the, the fruit tree? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We've got the, we have the, the tree, the tree of knowledge and we have the, the, um, I feel like I'm in, a, the feel like I'm in a, some sort of college class right <laughs> I now. I feel like, like, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> I'm not going to pass this one maybe. <laughs> so we have, we have, they've got the, the tree of life too. And so the, the tree, what the tree would represent initially is it's something that would be processed around and it would be the tree, it would represent not just the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of, of, of the of tree of life, of eternal life. And so in these mystery plays, the tree that would be carried around would represent this would be at Christmas time would represent this new, this new life. And in fact, we have records in the 1600s of um, Christians in their churches decorating their their trees that they had for the plays with wafers and the wafers the sugar wafers would be in the form of what we have as eucharistic hosts and so they would also have apples on them so we've got sort of this representation of genesis and the nativity this connection between adam and eve and then with mary and jesus is that where also so, where like ornaments came yes, from yes okay. yes absolutely our oldest ornaments were were ones based on on the medieval mystery plays and so the christmas tree tradition came to be something where uh, the average Christian, and this starts especially in Germany, uh, they uh, in German-speaking lands, they see this tradition that is in the church and in the plays, and they say, I want that in my home. And so uh, in, the, in, the, 
in the mid 1600s, we start to have laws saying you can only cut a tree up to four feet high. And so the reason we see these laws is because people are going around and cutting trees down to bring into their homes so that they can they can do the same thing that they've seen in the community. And so uh, Christmas trees are not connected. Now, Christmas trees in the home, I should say, are not connected with anything prior to the 17th century, really. So it's it's much more of a recent development, and it comes out of that interest and fascination in, in uh, some of the things that guilds were doing and, and churches were doing. Now, when you say trees, they were chopping them down. Any tree, or is it, has it always been the traditional triangular no, evergreen? It's, it's not a full-size tree. Full-size trees are our second half of the 19th century. Usually, you might have uh, people cut off the top of a tree. And they might just cut off something that would be, it was usually a tabletop tree. So you'd have something that was a couple feet in height and you would put it on a table and then you might decorate around it or put a nativity around it or something like that. And well, so I'm glad the they started this tradition because I think for all of us, you know, you're decorating the Christmas tree, but on the Christmas music, that's, you know, I think for most of that's one of our favorite Christmas traditions. Now, do you wait to closer to Christmas? Do you do the whole Advent thing? Or? I do set up the tree the day after Thanksgiving, yeah, but I do keep it up all the way till the end of the Christmas season. Same. None of this, you know, New Year's day. It's yeah, let's get rid of the tree. No. I, I love my tree though. So I, I'm not saying I'm adhering to the rule necessarily as I'm the one to keep my tree up because I like it so much. <laughs> do you adhere to, the, to, to everything too at home, Dr. Bertana? I, I don't be, well, you know, I, I always want to keep it up until January 6th, until the, the, you know, the three Kings day, you know, the, the feast of the Magi, January 6th. But I, what you're supposed to do, if you want to keep it, keep it up the entire Christmas season, then you go until the presentation of the Lord in the temple 40 days after the purification of Mary. So February 2nd is the real date that you should keep your tree up. I may hit February 2nd this year. (laughs) We'll see. If you get a real tree, it may not last though. All right. 10 things you don't know about Christmas. Last one. Number 10. How was St. Nicholas related to Christmas? Well, St. Nicholas, unfortunately or fortunately, gets transformed into this uh, Santa Claus creation. And so how, how, do, how does that happen? Initially, of course, St. Nicholas is celebrated his feast day on December 6th. And so there's a tradition which comes from medieval uh, stories uh, that were collected by Jacob Voragine and the Golden Legend and other people that talked about how uh, St. Nicholas, for people who were in need, he would take the gold, he would take uh, alms and so forth, and he would give it to needy people. And in one case, like throwing it through the window and landing in their shoe or their stocking. So we get this tradition of St. Nicholas as a deliverer of gifts uh, in the in the, in the the Christian tradition quite early. So that's one reason that he's connected with Christmas. The second reason he's connected with Christmas is because he becomes the patron saint of shipping and of sailors. And that's because he I was I didn't know in, that one. Yeah. He was in, in Mira. And Mira was a port town in in uh, Asia Minor in, a Greek, in the Greek area, and so um, because of that, the traditions during his lifetime and afterward that for safe travels and so forth, this was really important to have Saint Nicholas there, and so he becomes a patron saint of a major uh, power uh, in the Netherlands, uh, which is a you know it becomes a world power in the Netherlands. One one thing they do, the Dutch do, is they create a colony in um, North North America, and their colony is called New Amsterdam. And later on, New Amsterdam gets taken over and it becomes New York. And when in the early 1800s, the people in New York are looking for how do we celebrate Christmas? Because the Puritans up to this point, the Puritans had had no feasts at all. They had banned Christmas. 
And so many of the people in this time were looking for their a past and some connection. And so in the process of doing this, they grasped upon New Amsterdam and the tradition they had of Sancta Claus, uh, Holy Nicholas of St. Nicholas to, to um, draw him in. And so St. Nicholas starts to get uh, transformed slowly by these 19th century New Yorkers into a figure that well, he still delivers gifts, but now he's, he's starting to do it during Christmas time. And now he is uh, visiting. And so what's interesting is that St. Nicholas was a bishop. He was a leader. He had authority. He was a judge. And so he has that, that kind of role initially uh, as St. Nicholas is going to have that. Uh, for for children, he's going to be a judge. He might bring a rod. He might bring coal for you. <laughs> but slowly over time, as uh, more and more authors start to write stories for their children and start to talk about him, he turns into this large, puffy man. Who's, big white beard. He's big white beard. He's a right jolly old elf. He has dimples. And he becomes this happier person who is going to reward children and he's not going to be an authority and a judge. And so his, his bishop role declines as he becomes more of this, this new figure who's going to be someone who doesn't chastise children, but who encourages children. And so that's how he gets transformed. And the most important one probably is Clement Clark Moore's poem. It was the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. And so this story gets popularized. And so by the end of the 1820s, it's written in around 1820, 1822. Uh, within a decade, it's published in all newspapers across the United States and Santa Claus becomes a tradition. And St. Nicholas uh, rides off into the sunset uh, ha- having his, um, you know, having his identity stolen by Santa Claus. <laughs> but would you, you said Santa Claus means what? Uh, Santa Claus comes from uh, Santa from from Sancta or Saint in in and so from for Saint Holy and then Klaus is just or Nick is short for Nicholas Nikolaus Klaus for short and so Sancta Klaus is where Sa- Santa Claus where we get where we get that name today. That's very fascinating. Well, see, yes. I we still celebrate December sixth at uh-huh. our house. We put out the shoes and. St. Nick comes and usually it's candy that, that St. Nick brings. So we're still keeping that tradition alive, Dr. Bertana. It's still going strong at our house. Good. And for, <laughs> and for you guys and for anyone who's listening to this on December 6th, St. Nicholas should bring an orange. Make sure you bring an orange. That's why, because he would uh, give out gold. And so we don't give out gold coins today, but um, the orange re- represents with its gold color that, that thing. And so that tradition, keeping it on, that was something that was done is that, uh, you give out maybe a little Clementine orange or something like that. What's so fascinating about our, my converse, our conversation with you is the amount of things that, you know, Christmas obviously stems from Christianity and Jesus being born, but there's so many things you mentioned that you think were paganized or, or some somebody just thought of it, but it really, a lot of it just stems from Christian tradition that maybe got morphed over time into a more paganish symbol. Um, so I find that really fascinating. Yeah, I think we we can think of Christmas as dynamic, right? That that Christmas is a tradition, but it's a tradition we're always we're always adding to that tradition and then we're always recovering tradition. So we're we're always looking at new traditions every generation for our families, but we're always looking back and trying to recover things and and trying to live them better in our lives. So I think Christmas is going to be a valuable time for us to reflect on and and uh, really appreciate the birth of our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So where can we get a nativity set that's a cave? 
Oh, the cave set. Ooh, that's a, you're going to have to make Amazon, that one. Probably not. You're going to have to make that one on your own. You just need enough Legos. <laughs> there you go. Dr. David Pertina, he is the uh, history professor out at UIS, Catholic University of America. That's where he got his doctorate. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thanks a lot. It's been yes, a pleasure. Thank you. This has been Dive Deep. If you want more podcasts, go to dio.org slash podcast. We will see you next time.